You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Thank you for tuning into Mining Stock Education. And in today's episode, you're going to be hearing a stock profile of Lithium Americas Corp. This uh, company trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker LAC. Uh, As a disclosure, I don't own any shares at the time of this interview. I have no business relationship with this company. However, my guest today is a fund manager, Chip Russell of Massive Cap, and his fund recently did a write-up and invested in this company. So Chip's going to be providing his investment thesis for why Massive Capital has invested in this company. Chip is a managing partner, and he's partners with Will Thompson, who has also been a previous guest from Massive Cap on this show. So Chip, welcome to Mining Stock Education today. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate you having me. Let's talk the lithium market. It's not something we cover so much on this show, but we do periodically when we have a specialist like yourself that understands it well. Provide an overview of the supply and demand um, outlook for the lithium market, let's say for the next five to 10 years, please. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. I think we're at a uh point now in the cycle um, where, in our opinion, coming into 2021 and likely through 2025, uh, we think the market is going to be quite tight um, from a supply standpoint, coincident with um, a real sort of uh, rate of change differential on the demand side. And so um, if we think about and sort of just set the stage and provide some context behind this, uh, coming into 2020 and sort of if we th- if we sort of plant a flag in March, so sort of right at that bifurcation of pandemic, pre-pandemic, um, we had about uh, 300,000 tons uh, of supply be either suspended or canceled as we went from sort of the 2017 price highs uh, and enthusiasm in the market followed by the sort of precipitous uh, price drop. And we saw a number of the, again, planned supply uh come either offline uh, completely, may never get built and or and or be suspended. Um, and so we, in our opinion, we think price has uh, flatlined um, and sort of we've hit a bottom certainly for carbonate. Again, coming into sort of the spring of this year, we started to even see some upticks in the uh, hydroxide prices. Um, and we're looking at an industry now that's growing at about a 15 to 20% compounded annual growth rate over the next uh, five to six years. And so we're, we're, we're in a market environment now where we're moving from, you know, roughly, um, I think it's, you know, 20,000 uh, tons of growth per year to about 200,000 tons of growth per year. Um, and as you're likely aware and your viewers are likely aware, the ability to bring on supply uh, to meet demand uh, can can have a significant lag, right? So the, the, uh, the notion of sort of when we receive the appropriate price signals such that new supply can be incentivized and sort of final investment decisions can be brought online relative to the when that supply then successfully actually gets to market um, could be a multi-year period. Um, and so as we look at sort of the demand profiles, and again, not, not based on forecast, but really looking at the automaker sort of EV roadmaps and looking at the gigafactories that are, you know, financed and under construction today. If we look at the needs of those facilities, um, we're looking at a situation where, you know, the market is likely going to need to be pricing, you know, carbonate and a hydroxide, and we can sort of get into the differentials between the two, between 10 to $12,000 a ton to incentivize uh, certainly uh, greenfield production and likely brownfield ex- uh, expansion as well. And so that to us is sort of the point at which the industry can hopefully sort of expand to meet then the demand 
uh, profile from 2025 to uh, 2030. And so, again, we think we're at sort of this interesting interesting situation where, you know, yes, it's unfortunate that lithium is a very illiquid market. So we are going to see volatility uh, in the price. Um, but again, we're, we're, we're at a point where we think we're, we've sort of bottomed and the fundamentals, sort of the capital cycle analysis behind this, um, even though the demand forecasts are, are so robust, uh, is, is, is quite appealing. So that's sort, of, that's sort of where we sit today. Chip, in preparation for this interview, I went back and listened to an interview I did with a fund manager in 2018, about two mm -hmm. years ago. And mm -hmm. in the course of that interview, we were talking about the EV revolution and what metals yeah. uh, would benefit. And he was bearish on lithium to where he thought that the lithium supply could be turned on quite quickly to counter yeah. any demand and pointing even to what happened in 2017. Now, I personally don't know enough of the minutia of the market to argue point by point with you, but in general, what would be your response to that? Yeah, I, um, I think it's uh, factually incorrect to suggest that uh, supply can be brought on quickly. Um, and so, you know, at, at sort of case in point, and we, and we put this out in, in our report, but, um, you know, if you look at the uh, the SQMs, the Albemarle's, and at the time, the FMC's of the world, and we look at their planned capacity expansion from, say, you know, 2012 to 2016, um, they hit about 50% of, of their target um, and have consistently, and again, this is the majors, have consistently sort of fallen behind relative to expectations of bringing supply in the market. Now, the challenges of bringing supply in the market are, you know, are a couple fold, right? There's obviously just the notion of these are capex intensive um, mining operations by which it just simply takes time to bring these assets online. There's also some differences as it relates to um, if we plant ourselves in the brine operations of, say, South America. Um, you know, there's there's some the nuance as to, as it relates to what's the relationship with the government, um, whether the government is actually allowing them to, in the case of say SQM and Albemarle, access the aquifers that then allow them to expand production, and whether they get held up in sort of a court situation as it relates to again property rights. And so, you know, with the uh, spotamine and hard rock producers in Australia, um, you know, you might be able to pull and sort of quote unquote mine this resource a little bit easier than say brine, but then you have the uh, issue of transportation and then actually shipping that up uh, to say China, which is where all the chemical conversion is happening today um, and the quality of that supply. Um, and then lastly, sort of touching on the quality point, the there's a, and, and I think a growing differential between uh, bringing on, uh, say, a, a lithium carbonate equivalent into the market, if you will, and a, a battery grade uh, product, which is sort of getting increasingly stringent and being set by these auto OEMs, right? So the, the fact that, you know, it is true that lithium is certainly a abundant resource uh, that is perhaps, you know, the, the mining methods are perhaps, um, not as prohibitive as some other mining methods out there for other metals and minerals. Um, but the midstream processing um, and the ability to turn supply on sort of on a dime, um, I think is I, I think is a fallacy. Um, so I, I, I would just I would disagree with that. And that's sort of predicated on just an historical observation of uh, how the majors have performed over the last decade. The Tesla share price has driven the price of a lot of lithium juniors in the past year. So do you account or do an analysis of where the Tesla share price is moving in order to determine where the price of lithium might go? Uh, we do not. Um, and I would, that's an interesting, um, 
that's an interesting way to phrase that, right? I think the um, what the price of we don't have a particular opinion on Tesla. We're not invested in Tesla at the moment. Um, Tesla is a very interesting case study for a number of reasons, both within the world of electric vehicles and the clean energy, clean mobility movement, also within the world of public equity markets and how one should be valuing um, a public equity um, and. Um, so there's, you can sort of bifurcate the Tesla story into those two stories, sticking with the sort of Tesla being a, uh, key sort of developer and very much pushing the boundaries of the electric vehicle, um, movement, um, and technology. Um, I do think it has probably pulled forward other auto, uh, OEMs, timelines, um, and sort of research and development programs to put a foot in the door to the electric vehicle market. Um, and so insofar as Tesla being there or not there, I think to its uh, sort of broader competitors, um, it has very much pulled forward, I, I would say that demand profile. Um, with respect to Tesla's stock price, um, as it relates to the price of lithium, I think there is at best, a very low correlation between those two. And I'm not sure that's even really sort of an appropriate um, dichotomy to sort of be tearing apart, if that makes sense. Okay. Let's get to your stock profile, which I mentioned you would provide in the introduction. So your uh, fund invested in Lithium Americas Corp. The ticker symbol, again, is LAC on the New York Stock Exchange. Provide an overview of your investment thesis. Why did you take a position in this company? Sure. So um, we think Lithium America Core today is the strongest junior miner uh, lithium producer in the world. Uh, it's an advanced stage developer. It's uh, bringing to market two world-class assets, the uh, Kuchari Alaroz uh, project in Northwest Argentina um, and the Thacker Pass project in Nevada. Um, the projects are at different stages of development, um, but we think that the uh, resource base that the company has, uh, the management team that the company has, um, and the sort of well-capitalized position the firm finds themselves in today uh, suggests that, uh, you know, we think it's going to be sort of this unique situation where within a sort of roughly five to eight year period, we're going to see a pre-production mining firm go become actually one of the majors within the industry. Um, and I think that's rare and, and only possible sort of in this case as, a, you know, simply the fact that, you know, the lithium market and the lithium production market is not that big as, as uh, you know, today. And so the, the, the sort of rate of change for lack to go from, again, a sort of development stage company to a major within the industry is, is quite compelling. Um, we think the assets sort of on a pure net asset value basis, simply at the price, uh, which sort of the marginal price at which new production needs to be brought online, we think the assets are worth $35 today. So it's a roughly sort of 200% uh, increase from from uh, the price today, and the, the the sort of delta between where we you know the price today and and that thirty five dollar estimate uh, is we think simply underwriting the ability for the company to to bring these projects on online. So uh, the thesis or the investment thesis is not uh, predicated on say uh, an appreciating lithium price to the two thousand seventeen highs and or beyond. Uh, this is not a a production company that we think is say fairly valued and the sort of bullish thesis uh, is, is, is an appreciating commodity price. Um, we certainly have that sort of perspective on the market that certainly aids in our conviction in the thesis, uh, but we think the, the assets as, as they're um, 
as they sort of sit in the ground today, brought online are easily worth $35 a share. And from there, we see some upside optionality, which we can get into. But again, I think we think it's um, a very sort of unique situation, uh, a very sort of unique time in the market. You've described the asset in Argentina as a tier one asset, yeah. but um, Lithiums America has a 49%, therefore a minority ownership. Yep. I understand they're in partnership with a Chinese company. Is, yep. is this a risk to you that the fact that they're not a majority owner? No, I don't think so. Um, I, I think actually their strategic partnership with Gangfang uh, is uh, is uh, a value add. I think it's a creative, um, and I think the company's actually been quite smart. And you know, actually, you know, independent of say looking at the Lax management team and looking at their backgrounds, right? John Evans, sort of former leading FMC's uh, lithium division, et cetera. You can actually look at the decisions that the management team has made over the last five years in terms of how to actually capitalize the business to bring on two resources of this size and magnitude. And I think their decision to partner with Gangfang uh, is sort of a notch on the uh, very good decision making, uh, uh, and in, in terms of you know how, how to actually bring these uh, these assets online. Gangfang, in a non-dilutive manner? In a non-dilutive manner, exactly, right? So um, they uh, previously coming into this year, they were 50-50 partners. Uh, Yang Fang increased their ownership to 51%. I think um, you know it made sense for them to consolidate um, their uh, balance sheet financially. They can access own capital in China and sort of bring it offshore. Uh, economically, it doesn't change much for LAC and they do have strong minority uh, shareholder protection, right? So there is joint approval required for all major decisions, whether that's scope, size, quality. Um, so LAC still very much is a is um, is a strong partner in this. Um, and when you have the you know strongest lithium producer in the world today, which we think is Gangfang, double down on a project that has already spent you know 365 million of the 565, about 81% of that's been committed, about 70% has actually been spent. Um, and is to be mechanically completed shortly and turned on within the next 12 months, um, we certainly think it's value accretive. So um, I, I think their partnership with Gang Fang and the 49% interest, uh, interest uh, ownership, as you noted, is, um, is a good thing. And we would expect the same likely to happen with Thacker Pass. Uh, we don't have any details on that matter, but um, one of the sort of interesting news flows that we expect coming into 2021 is um, how lack uh, finances, partners, whether that's a, a joint venture agreement, et cetera, with a Thacker Pass project. And, I, and our expectation would be that the partner they bring on is, is value accretive. The other thing I'd say about Gangfang too, is that, you know, they have, um, and I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it's, no, you know, it's north of 90% of the offtake on Kuchari is committed at market prices. And again, so as a sort of pre-production asset going into production, the notion that you've got, you know, secured uh, uh, supply offtake um, as of, you know, even 18 months ago um, is, is, is So is nothing's hedged. When you say that, you mean nothing's hedged, the market prices Correct. as they will occur in the future. Correct. Correct. Okay. What are some other risks here? When you did your uh, opportunity risk analysis, what were the key risks you came up with? Yeah. So I, I think the, um, there's, I would say the primary risk is development risk, um, right? And so the um, bringing two large um, mines online is is not easy, 
right? And so there is development risk. I think that's largely likely confined today to simply time horizon risk, right? Whether or not you think the firm can execute on say bringing Kachari on in 12 months, or if it's a 24 month pro process insofar as the government of Argentina shutting it down again because of COVID and or not being able to get equipment in on site and or the processing facilities um, are not sort of operating to spec. And so the, the ability to have sort of operating at, at full capacity is delayed uh, from say 2021 to 2022. So I think there's absolutely development risk. Certainly with Thacker Pass, there is more development risk. And I would say it's probably more better characterized as production risk only insofar as the mining at Thacker Pass is uh, spot mining or clay mining, which is um, not technically unique, but certainly operationally unique within the world of lithium. So that deposit has been known for quite a while, given the size of the lithium market's never been um, economically interesting to bring online. Uh, but the development that they need to do at Thacker Pass from the processing standpoint, right? So taking the, they know how to get the, you know, uh, the clay in, into a lithium sulfur, but then to make that into a lithium salt, either hydroxide or a carbonate um, is, again, has been done at sort of a, at lab scale, um, but they need to execute that at sort of pilot project scale and, and beyond to sort of really hone in uh, and say what a DFS is going to uh, articulate as it relates to the the grade coming out of there um, and the costs associated with that. So development risk is, is, is really number one. Um, and then obviously number two is, is, is market risk. Um, this is, I would say second to development risk only insofar as the discount to, to what we think its intrinsic value is, is predicated on these assets coming online. But insofar as we have a uh, situation in the either EV market and or sort of demand profile or supply situation of the lithium market where prices stay south of, you know, $7,000 a ton for carbonate or hydroxide, um, that could be uh, problematic for the ultimate value of, of the business. Um, one of our, we, we wrote a white paper in the spring of 2019 on sort of the risks and opportunities within the battery supply chain. And one of our uh, sort of conclusions from that was that the, uh, EV automaker roadmaps are actually likely going to be delayed, not because of the ability for the auto uh, OEMs to execute on their plans and or consumer interest, but simply because not enough supply is going to be able to um, breach the market. Um, and so we might have situations where tight supply actually leads to an auto sector that needs to tamp down their demand profile or expectations as it relates to actually bringing new vehicles on the market, which then has sort of a circular feedback loop as it relates to how fast the sort of, you know, ultimate size of the market is reached, right? Whether it happens in, you know, right now, a lot of these growth expectations, if you look at sort of the benchmark mineral intelligence or the Bloomberg um, new energy, uh, you know, finance uh, reports are lo really looking at sort of a 10 year period before we hit kind of a a point at which EVs become, you know, roughly larger than 50% of new cars being brought onto the market in any given year, not total cars on the market, but new cars being brought onto the market. Uh, the notion that we hit that in the next 10 years, uh, as opposed to say getting stretched out to 2035 uh, is unclear at this point. We don't have, you know, strong conviction in that sort of end flagpole at 2030. And then obviously if you extend that out, that, that has sort of downstream implications to sort of what the demand ramp looks like uh, leading up to that. So, you know, you know, interestingly enough, supply situation or lack of supply or challenge to actually meet expected demand in the near term could actually lead to auto OEMs sort of revising down 
what they plan to actually bring onto the market, which again, sort of has that, that circular feedback loop. So risk number one, development risk. Um, I think that's really sort of key to get to close that price uh, differential between the roughly, I guess, $10, $12 we're seeing in the market today relative to our $35 uh, share price. Um, the time it takes to get to 35 and or what the ultimate value upside from 35 is to say, $80, $90 price, which again, sort of is predicated on either pricing multiples and sort of an options analysis. Um, that's really, that's probably going to be driven by the market, the health of the market, the liquidity in the lithium market, um, et cetera. What's your share price target for when the company actually starts to produce cash about a year from now or so? Um, so we think a $35 target is is realistic by 2024, 2025. Um, so if we're talking, you know, the beginning part of 2022, uh, it's not unrealistic to think that the company is trading uh, in the mid 20s. And or, you know, if, if it's if it's already producing cash from Kuchari at that point, and let's say Thacker Pass is um, sitting in early 2022, a year out from production, it's not unrealistic to uh, expect that they could be trading in the low 30s at that point. I asked you about how Tesla affects the lithium market. Now I'm going to ask you yeah. about how stock picking YouTube channels and traders influence this uh, share price of LAC, because it seems to be a darling yeah. as I just did a preliminary YouTube search. There's a lot of people talking about it and recommending yeah. it for trading purposes. Do you analyze that at all? You know, we don't, um, that particular aspect of it, I don't think we, we analyze. We are very conscious and are, perhaps have a growing interest in um, how the market structure is going to affect uh, the equity. And so what I mean by that is looking at uh, the owners of the business, um, the sort of capitalization of the business, the shares outstanding, how much of that is free float, who owns those shares and why. Um, I think is a very interesting and important analysis in this day and age as we're seeing the total percent of passive sort of non-price sensitive actors in the market increase. So as an example, if we're looking at say a Lithium America core and we're looking at the company back in early 2020 when it was um, two, three, four dollars a share and a few hundred million dollar market cap. And at the time management owned a good chunk of it, a, uh, a Thai oil company that provided financing in 2017, which has now just exited their investment. At the time they owned close to 15% of it. Um, and Gang Fang had a large um, uh, minority interest in, the, in, in LAC, in the equity of LAC itself. And so if we look at say, for instance, a $300 million market cap company that has, let's call it, you know, 65, 70% of the total uh, shareholders are either not selling and or not price sensitive, either because of say a passive investment vehicle and or we know that they're a strategic shareholder that isn't interested in selling within the next 12 months. The opportunity for say retail or retail speculation to have an outsized impact on the share price goes up probabilistically, right? So the, the, if the all else equal, the stock price becomes more inelastic, um, and uh, small changes in daily flows or monthly flows, however you want to articulate it, can have an outsized impact on the stock price. So I would say as it sort of getting back to the original question, as it relates today, um, I don't think Black is necessarily in a position where the um, speculative nature of some of the YouTube videos or passion around this or some of the um, hey, we're, you know, we're, this is another sort of battery company that's going to ride the coattails of Tesla. It's not clear to me that those 
flows or retail flows are going to have an outsized impact on the company's share price today. Um, I will say that, for instance, one of the passive ETFs that LAC finds itself in today um, is uh, weighted based on uh, free float, meaning the larger amount of free float a company has measured by this particular index and ETF, the larger uh, percent share it, it, uh, <clears throat> it has within that passive investment vehicle. Um, we do know that as one of their uh, strategic investors at the time has exited the position of lack, they've effectively taken taken down their 15% stake down to probably sub 5% stake over the last two months. We do believe that the free float of lack has actually increased such that their percent uh, within a particular passive vehicle may be actually increasing in 2021. So we actually might be seeing larger passive flows or larger non-price sensitive flows into the equity. And so, um, in our report, that is sort of one of the you know four to five catalysts um, that we think is sort of interesting as you think about this equity from a market structure standpoint. But um, you know we don't really place much weight at the moment on um, you know the the sort of retail investor and/or speculative nature of some of the sort of day trading and/or sort of YouTube phenomenons that have um, sort of bubbled up over the last year. We love the passion. It's fantastic, but it's I don't. Um, it's not clear that it's sort of on the margin uh, important for this investment thesis. So my last question: the volume we've seen in the stock in the, in December, yeah. and in particular from the twenty first to the twenty eighth, this is a this mm. is this company's on the New York Stock Exchange, yet it rose fifty percent in one week. So, yeah. what was your analysis of what was going on there? Um, we haven't actually looked at that very closely, so I can't give you a, a, a very good answer. Um, I think you know it's interesting. We had um, quite a lot of. Um, it's very possible that you know they've started to receive more passive inflows. Um, it's not clear to me that's the case though, because a lot of the um, ETFs are going to be sort of rebalancing on a quarterly or annual basis, and so. I don't actually, as I'm sort of saying this in real time, I don't actually think that that's necessarily the uh, the catalyst for that. So I, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, although I will say, you know, increased volume and increased liquidity is a is certainly a good thing for a company that's well capitalized going into, you know, again, sort of T minus 12 months from seeing um, actually an income statement reflect the value of the assets that are in the ground right now. So um Increased volume is 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 good. I, I don't have an explanation for sort of that fifty percent turnover, as you noted, but it's um, it's going to be interesting to watch. Chip, your website is massivecap.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. Is that the best way for someone to get in contact with you if they want to reach out? Yeah, best way to get in contact. Thanks, Bill. Okay, excellent. All right, massivecap.com. I really appreciate this uh, overview, Chip. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. Nice speaking with you. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. 
concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.